0: Welcome to another episode of Health Affairs This Week, where health affairs editors and sometimes special guests discuss the latest in health policy news. I'm Jessica Bylander. And I'm Leslie Erdelak. So this week, we are excited to be joined by Katie Keith, a frequent guest on our podcast, a contributing editor at Health Affairs, where she provides really in-depth analysis of key health policy initiatives pretty much right after they drop. So we thought, who better to come on the podcast to talk about a new proposed rule from HHS that was released on Monday, and it's related to the anti-discrimination provisions in the Affordable Care Act and the long and somewhat tortured backstory of those provisions. So Katie, thanks for joining us. Yes, so happy to be here. Thanks. So the new proposed rule centers around the implementation of Section 1557 of the ACA, which is about a paragraph long, and it prohibits health programs or activities that receive federal funds from discriminating on the basis of race, color, national origin, age, disability, or sex. And if that sounds straightforward to you, you would be wrong. (laughs) So basically, since the um, law came out, the brief text of the law has been subject to various interpretations, reinterpretations, regulations, and lawsuits. Right, Leslie?
1: Yeah, that's right. And I feel like in part, it's because the law is so big, and it's so consequential. And, you know, these are protections that took effect the day the Affordable Care Act was signed. And Katie, you have a new article that just went live on Health Affairs Forefront, where you talk about sort of the long history of rulemaking and subsequent litigation over Section 1557. And the proposed rule that we're talking about today is actually similar to one that was written during the Obama years. And it was subsequently rescinded during the Trump administration. And now HHS is looking to reinterpret some of those protections that were rolled back in 2020, and maybe even take them a step further. So There's just a lot of back and forth, and we're really glad to have you here to help us break it all down. But I wanted to maybe start by just asking you to help us understand the purpose of the law, why it's important. And, um, you know, I'm curious if you can help maybe explain how Section 1557 might come into play for someone who's interacting with the healthcare system, and then tell us just a little bit about the scope of this new rule
2: and what it covers. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Leslie. So Section 1557 is a huge, next big, important step in what I would call a long history of civil rights laws that have impacted healthcare And the way that 1557 works, that paragraph uh, that Jessica was talking about that's written into the statute, it incorporates existing federal civil rights laws to healthcare. So some of these already applied, but section 1557 sort of broadens them out. And when I say existing federal civil rights laws, I'm talking about things like Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, Title VI combined with Medicare and Medicaid is widely credited as desegregating hospitals in the South, for example. Um, Section 1557 takes Title VI and in- incorporates it and builds on it to make, make it even clearer that it applies to health insurance companies, for example. And so, one important thing to emphasize, I would say, we have all these existing federal civil rights laws that get applied. Section 1557 is the first one that has extended sex non discrimination protections to health care. And the way that the law does that is to take Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. I think a lot of people know Title IX from sort of the college sports area, Um, but it applies Title IX to healthcare. And again, this is the first time we've seen sex-based non-discrimination protections apply. And it's just one of those reasons why I think the sex non-discrimination protections get so much attention in this rule. It's not that it doesn't cover race and ethnicity and national origin and disability and age, but the sex provisions are particularly new and that's why there's so much emphasis there. And so as to some of the concrete examples you asked about of sort of the impact of section 1557, I could give a few, but I might just stick with what was included in the rule. You know, the the Department of Health and Human Services gives some of their own as well. I think a really good example is, um, and and this has come up quite a bit during COVID, uh, people who might not speak English as their first language or have some kind of limited English proficiency maybe Maybe they could speak, but they can't um, read or write English very well, those kinds of things. Uh, This provision says um, hospitals, uh, any sort of facility that receives federal funding, you have to provide a a qualified interpreter or qualified translation services. And what that means is um, you can't provide rely on uh, a child to interpret something for a parent, for example, which we know is something that happens probably far too common. You can't rely on sort of a random staff person who might, I don't know, speak Spanish <laughs> to be the one to translate when they're not trained or qualified and might, might not have sort of the medical terminology to be able to do that. So that's sort of a maybe a, a really basic one that folks should be able, to, should have the right to receive healthcare information in, the, in a way that they can understand it. That is something that section 1557 says Um, There's also, I think, a lot of examples baked into the role uh, specifically on people's gender identity. And so one example is insurance companies can't categorically say we are never going to cover gender affirming care if you needed for um, gender transition or for certain reasons because of your gender identity. We're not going to cover that ever when you're covering the same set of services for someone who needs them because they're not transgender. And so that distinction between someone's gender identity and, you know, basing it on who they are uh, is discriminatory. So lots, I mean, there's, as you could tell there's sort of sweeping examples and I haven't even given you any on um, disability, or race and ethnicity or a whole host of other factors, but this is a way to sh- sort of make sure or level the playing field in terms of access to healthcare across the board.
0: Yeah, and as you mentioned this, um... The, the law brought in so many existing statutes around discrimination on race, ethnicity, age, disability. Um, so, I mean, it has so many implications. But as you mentioned, a lot of the attention, a lot of the back and forth between the various rules and some lawsuits that have come up have been around what it means to discriminate on the basis of sex. So wondering if you can walk us through kind of the key differences in how the Trump administration versus the Obama and the Biden administrations interpreted what types of sex discrimination were covered. And, you know, without detailing every lawsuit, like what were the main interest groups on either side of this debate?
2: It's a great question. So, you know, the, and there's actually not a Completely clean story here. If you couldn't believe that, surprise! Uh, so the the Obama administration did its rulemaking in 2016. They had previously come out long before and, and done guidance as early as 2012 uh, to say we think we interpret sex to include um, gender identity at a minimum. And then fast forward to their 2016 rule. Uh, they included gender identity, they included sex stereotyping, um, they did not actually include sexual orientation, they did not feel like the case law, the you know, what the courts had said, had developed to that point where they could include sexual orientation, but they thought that most of the claims that might be brought by someone based on being, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, plus, could fall under sex stereotypes, uh, and then they included a whole host of... Um, other examples, but termination of pregnancy was an example, for instance, that was included under sex discrimination. And what that meant, the way I always interpreted it anyway, was you couldn't discriminate against someone based on a medical history of abortion. Uh, you know, I couldn't say, no, we're not going to serve you because you have an abortion in your, you've had an abortion in the past. Um, so sex was, to, suffice it to say, sex was defined broadly in that way. Gender identity, sex stereotyping, termination of pregnancy, et cetera. So fast forward to 2020 when the Trump administration issues its rule, and there they got rid. Uh, the administration got rid of a whole host of definitions, including the definition of sex. And so formally, they would say there's no definition of sex. We're going to leave it to you know the hospitals and and anyone who's covered by this rule to decide. But in the preamble, if you sort of read it closely, uh, they referred repeatedly to uh, for those of you who can't see me using air quotes biological sex. Um, and if you want to read more about that, you can um, go and do that. I won't unpack it here. That interpretation was challenged by, I would say, you know, individual patients, civil rights organizations, Democratic attorneys general. And parts of that interpretation were set aside uh, in part because the Supreme Court had just issued a decision a few days after uh, this regulation was issued by the Trump administration, almost ruling, you know, the opposite. And I think we'll get to that so we can put a pin there. And then you have the Biden administration come in. Uh, This rule is not the rule we're talking about today has not been litigated yet, of course. But last year in 2021, the Biden administration put out guidance saying, hey, we're reading that Supreme Court decision called Bostock. And we think it applies here, too that sex includes sexual orientation and gender identity, meaning that LGBTQ plus people would be protected from discrimination in healthcare. And there's already been litigation over that guidance uh, by again, sort of religiously affiliated uh, healthcare providers. And so um, that that definition was included um, going forward into this regulation, but the uh, Biden administration would also sort of take a broader approach to sex uh, non-discrimination too. So lots, if your head is spinning, uh, it's not, it's not you. It's it's this rule.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, Katie, you mentioned this. Um, you you referenced the Bostock decision, and this happened just after the Trump administration published that final rule in June of 2020. And you've written about this before. We can put the the link in the show notes. But that was a case related to um, employment discrimination, but it also had implications uh, for Section 1557. Um, But now I kind of want to look forward. And, you know, also in your your most recent post, you talked about how the proposed rule goes several steps beyond the 2016 rule. So what, what does that kind of look like?
2: Yeah, so there is a whole lot we could talk about, I'll give you what are some of the highlights, maybe from my perspective, Um, certainly something that we've already discussed is the changes to the, you know, how they're going to interpret sex. Um, In addition to including sexual orientation and gender identity, they also include um, pregnancy-related conditions. And one thing that I think is a big issue to watch, uh, they didn't include sort of their own standalone provision on what it means to discriminate based on uh, pregnancy-related conditions, which you can imagine is a big question in the wake of the Dobbs Supreme Court decision. Uh, But they asked for comment on whether they should have something specific and what is the impact of Dobbs as it relates to Section 1557 and non-discrimination. So that's something I'm going to watch for. Uh, In terms of other things they've done to build on the rule, uh, this is the first time I've seen them extend Section 1557 to the use of clinical algorithms and telehealth, right? You can sort of see the evolution of technology in that, or they would extend non-discrimination to the use of those tools. Uh, They would require entities to create specific policies and procedures for section 1557. They wouldn't dictate what those necessarily have to be, but they would say, you know, to comply with this really important non-discrimination requirement, you need to have it in writing somewhere and you need to train, you know, folks who are interacting with patients and the public on exactly what that means. So that's quite an extension from the 2016 rule, but one that I personally think makes sense. Uh, They would create a new process for healthcare providers that have a religious or moral objection. Uh, to, you know, performing certain types of procedures uh, or perhaps maybe an insurance company covering something. Uh, and then they have, and, and this is not my area of expertise, but I was pretty excited to see it in the rule, uh, what are called sort of integration requirements uh, for people with disabilities. And so they sort of weigh in on what plans and, and providers, uh, what their real obligations are for people with disabilities and sort of differential treatment between um, folks in institutional settings versus community-based settings and trying to make sure that there's kind of equal treatment across those so that we're not doing things in a way that pushes people into institutions and out of communities, which is a pretty broad extension too. So those are just some of the examples that come to mind of ways that they're uh, building on the 2016 rule that I I think are pretty exciting um, and going to be really interesting to watch over time.
1: So last question, knowing where we've been with 1557, what what do you think we should expect in terms of ongoing litigation?
2: To me, it's somewhat status quo because there's been an incredible amount of lawsuits. Uh, I would emphasize, you know, this is a proposed rule. They will issue a final rule. I would, if I had to venture, a guess, sometime next year, and then that would be the point where litigation would sort of kick up again over the Biden era rule. In the meantime, I'm still watching all these cases from back from, you know, 2016 and beyond. More to come from the courts on this for sure. But um you know, at least for now, it's open comment period. And, and so I imagine lots and lots of folks will be weighing in to try to shape the rule.
0: Yeah, your article that um, went live on Thursday is so comprehensive. Definitely encourage folks to read it. I know there's there's so much we can't cover it all. In addition, I believe um, Medicare uh, providers who provide Medicare Part B is also included in this Role, which is a never before. I can't name. believe I missed that, Jess. Thank you for saying
2: that. That should definitely be on the list of things beyond 16. Thank you.
0: Oh, I, I mean, it's just too much to cover all of it. So so I we can't encourage enough folks to go read the piece. Um, and, and with that, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Thanks again for joining us
2: today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks, Katie. And to our listeners, if you like this episode of Health Affairs This Week, Leave us a review to help people find the show and we'll see you next week. Thanks guys.